What's up, everybody? Uh, welcome back to the program. This is Glenn here, and I'm bringing you episode 50-something of the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. Uh, 53, I think, to be exact, but one may quibble over whether or not a couple of those constitute as episodes. Um, I've been absent for the last several weeks. However, Andrew has kept up a consistent release schedule, dropping a number of entertaining episodes. There are interviews, a solo episode, and a music mixtape-style show that he did in conjunction with Josh Short at Bomb Shelter Radio. So please go back and listen if you haven't already. Um, today's show is my conversation with folk singer-songwriter Darren Bradbury. Uh, Darren is originally from Union City, New Jersey, but now makes his home in Nashville. He has released three full-length records, beginning with 2016's Elmwood Park, a slightly melodic audiobook, and it was that record that introduced me to his work. Um, the other two records are 2019's Talking Dogs and Atom Bombs, and 2021's Artvertisement. Also, if you go to Darren's Bandcamp page, you will find a number of early recordings and unofficial releases in addition to the three aforementioned albums. Darren doesn't do much social media these days, but if you Google his name, you'll find some music videos, interviews, and other miscellany regarding the man and his career. Additionally, you can find him on the various streaming services. So have a listen, and if you like it, please show Darren some support by buying a record or two. Topics we discussed were his recent retirement from writing and releasing music, the East Nashville music community and its evolution over the years, growing up next to Manhattan, Billy Joel, Robert Earl Keane, Craig Finn, Todd Snyder, Dar Williams, and other influential songwriters. And we even talked a bit about Darren's challenges with PTSD, OCD, and OCPD. Oh, and I didn't do much editing with this talk, so there's 15 or 20 seconds of dead air at one point while Darren attends to a text message, and there are a couple other speed bumps that I could have cleaned up but didn't. So you're getting the unfiltered experience with this one. Also, uh, Darren's audio is coming through an iPhone speaker into a microphone, so the audio isn't crystal clear. In fact, you may even have to strain to hear at times, but please stay with it or risk missing out on Darren delivering some sharp insights as well as his trademark humor. Finally, for contextual purposes, the conversation starts midway through Darren talking about a recent night out with friends at Brown's Diner in Nashville. Darren's uh, a damn good songwriter and a really sweet guy as well. Um, and it was a lot of fun uh, talking with him, and I want to thank him again for the opportunity. Please give us a rating or a review wherever you listen, and go to RaisedByWhoops.com for information about the show. And while you're there, click the Capitalism tab and have a look around at some of our show merchandise. And while you're navigating around, look for a link that I'm going to drop in the show notes and on our website regarding Darren's outreach work that he's doing to help marginalized folks in Nashville. I'm going to play you into the episode with Darren's song, True Love, and I'll cap things off with another of his tunes entitled Breakfast. And before the music starts, 
Much love to Gordon Lightfoot's friends, family, and fans in light of his recent passing. He was a giant here in Canada and around the world, for that matter. Okay, that's all I got. Uh, enjoy the conversation, and we'll talk to you all soon. Yeah, I'm just going to roll. Keep coming. Over. like the meth lab in your mother's basement crudely born from jugs and far too willing to explode we weren't trying to get high we were just trying to clean the kitchen struck the right combination yeah and up there you go cause true love is gonna make you lose your teeth and true love is 62 and 23 in true love We'll always start off burning kind of sweet Cause baby I need you like I need a needle in my arm We've been calling it a good time But it's the farthest thing from fun well, I followed the track marks up the veins and through the blood. Now I'm sitting here wishing I had never touched that stuff. Cause true love is gonna make you lose your teeth. True love, you're 62 and 23. And true love will always start off burning kind of sweet. Wish I could get back to when Love was just a toke of something green like your eyes And gold like your hair And we could always laugh Even when there was no joke We lie lazy around like cats We're not going anywhere Cause true love Is gonna make you lose your teeth And true love 62 and 23 in true love will always start off burning kind of sweet Okay. And uh, it's a pretty pretty gentle Sunday. Nice, nicely done. Uh so you have a what's the pit bull's name? Albert, and then I got one named Enzo, a cat named Robert Kennedy, and a cat named Kika. Oh nice. Okay, yeah, I I did hear you mention Robert Kennedy before, so that's cool, yeah. So they're all doing well and healthy and whatnot. They're doing pretty well. Albert just had had to get a, a, a tumor removed from his peen. 
Oh, and recovering from surgery. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah Browns. How are you doing this morning? I, I'm doing good, man. Um, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty shitty weather around here, so I'm just, um, you know, just drinking coffee and um, just reading. Uh, I just started reading that drive-by truckers uh, biography by. Uh, yeah, by Stephen Dusner, I think the guy's name is. Um, so yeah, I've just been kind of getting caffeinated and reading a little bit. Um, yeah, I, Brown's Diner. I went there. Uh, I think in 2018, the last time I was in Nashville, I went there. Um, yeah, uh, that place is pretty is pretty sweet. Um, I I didn't know it existed, but then I I like read a. Uh, I was trying to figure out places to go in Nashville and I read like a Jason Isbell interview or something. And it said that he was doing the interview from Brown's diner. And I said, ah, that might be a cool place to stop by. And, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I I can't remember the waitress's name, but she was really cool and just got a burger. And she told us that, you know, all the, all the greats used to hang out there like Prine and, um, Waylon Jennings used to do cocaine there and all that shit. So, yeah, my, uh, they just did, they, they just remodeled it. It looks really good. It, it still feels like the same shack, but now they have more porches. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So it's very. Uh, but my buddy Terry does the booking there. Uh, my friend Coralie was playing there last night. I went to a show at the Purple Building, and then caught up with those folks. Uh, so I, I kind of did my month my monthly out of the house, uh, which is you know. Lately, I don't I don't really leave the house very much, uh, or leave my my little area of town. I guess is a better way to put that. So, yeah, yeah. Saw um, the purple building. Where whereabouts in town is that? That's uh, that's the joint that uh, Snyder helps run. My yeah. buddy Greg Mullen was playing there last night, and it's in Five Points, right in the heart of Five Points. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, I keep hearing about that place, but yeah, I've never, uh, I've never been. It's a cool vibe. They, they smoke a lot of weed in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think is, is cool. Um, then in Browns, we ended up smoking cigarettes. Uh, we, stayed, we stayed up late in Browns now. We were, we were, we were, I was tearing one off. Yeah. Uh, um, in a sober fashion, but still, regardless, I woke up with a cigarette hangover this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Right on. I, I smoked a whole pack last night being out. Oh. What do you uh, What do you smoke? I smoke uh, Celadon American Spirits. They're like this light green pack. They're kind of like the equivalent of American Spirits made of Parliament. Okay. Okay. I start. I started smoking them after my blood clock because they were lighter. Right. And. Um, and that's, I mean, that's no reason to smoke cigarettes after a blood clot, but uh, that's, I don't know, it stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, whenever I used to go down to the States when I smoked, I used to buy the yellow pack, I think. I don't even know what, maybe they're lights or, all, I, I can't remember now, but. Uh, they seem so heavy to me now. I used to, I smoked those in the blues for years. Yeah. And uh, they seem so, like, I can't even smoke one. Uh it's too heavy. Um, uh, does Canada have the same thing that England has, where you guys have like, where they have like the 
obnoxious uh, pictures of like decrepit lungs and like toothless children on the back drink. Yes, yeah, like it's pretty brutal. Um, yeah, like people hooked up to machines and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. You guys haven't got that advertising yet. Nah, that'll never happen in America. No, no. <laughs> There's a lot of things that could happen in America in the next eight to ten years, but cigarettes becoming, uh, you know, uh, cigarettes becoming like uh, European uh, and Canadian is not one of them. Yeah, uh, I don't think that. I think that we're just too much of a proud tobacco com- country. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I. I'm I'm for that. I don't believe in you know, putting, putting all that crap on cigarette packaging. I mean, you know, people got to make their own choices. Well, I think they did a great job here. I mean, I don't. I I thought that what what they did over the last like ten or fifteen years, I thought was really smart by constantly increasing the of the price of smokes. Yeah, and what I think it did is a whole new generation of people, they don't smoke like people my age smoke. Like I woke up this morning, I had a cup of coffee and a cigarette. So because a pack in like New York or New Jersey or even here of like hipster cigarettes like American Spirits is like 10 bucks here and like 15 or 20 bucks in the city, people just buy a pack of cigarettes and they like go out to drink. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, so you don't have the same kind of smoker because no one's looking at a seventeen dollar pack, being like, you know what, I can afford to smoke that every day. So I think that that's partially that and, and vaping, which I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you want to vape, that's cool, but you know, and uh, you know, I think that that really did a number on on the way Gen Z smokes if they smoke or even younger millennials smoke. I think they smoke different because of the price point. They treat it more like, hey, I'm going out to buy a six-pack on the weekend, not a daily habit kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I like the, I mean, smoking, uh, I, I, smoking just looks so much cooler than vaping too, right? So, I mean, I, I uh, yeah. yeah, man, like, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not gonna like you know tell anybody to smoke, but I mean if you're gonna if you're gonna put anything into your lungs, smoke a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's definitely true. Someone actually told me yesterday that I looked cool smoking. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean I cool smoking and smoking isn't cool. Yeah, I'm actually I'll have another cigarette as we're talking about this, but uh, yeah, um, you know it's a way to die. Lots of ways to die in the world. Yeah, man, you even wrote a song about it. Yeah, I, I, did. I did. Frozen pizza, right? Yeah, frozen pizza. Uh, that was uh, Jeremy Ivy's responsible for the third verse in that. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, that's that's uh, one of two. I've only done two co-writes in my entire life, and that was that and uh, John Latham's "Kimberly Met Billy." Okay. Uh, but oh, it's windy got this like cool sort of breeze going on yeah yeah like not quite spring yet not quite summer it's sort of in the middle yeah man but, uh, i enjoyed it. man i listened to them this morning i thought they were great oh some of my songs <laughs> yeah i thought they were awesome i think i think you should definitely go hit some open mic nights or, or do something with them they were very good man well thanks man i uh i appreciate it i mean i 
I like I said in the email to you, I still don't. Uh, I haven't written one that I'm like when we were talking before. You said that you thought you found your voice when you wrote um, yeah. "True Love," and um, you know, I still haven't written a song like that. Like where I think, like, okay, like this is like what I can contribute, you know. And I think that um, I think that that has to happen sometimes. Like you, you know, you have to write a song that you think, okay, this is, this is definitely like me, or this is distinctly my personality. And for me, I just feel like I'm still doing a lot of imitating. So. Interesting. I mean, well, I mean, the imitating is the, I, I don't call that stuff imitating. I, I call it, um, you're looking at the, somebody built a car that you think is really cool. And so you deconstruct their car and then you try to rebuild the, the carburetor and the engine so you can understand how the components of it work and then you do that long enough and eventually one day you look up and it's your own fucking car yeah yeah you know yeah um i i like i I know i like i'm just mainly for me i'm just interested in the song like i i can't play that well and i but like i just love like i like you said before you're kind of a word nerd and i'm kind of like that too i just like um I like trying to construct a good song and, um, you know, it's not about the gear or the, or the, uh, ability to play so much as it is to try to, you know, try to make somebody feel something with words, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a cool feeling. Yeah. Do you play nylon guitar or like a classical guitar mostly? It's funny. Um, the first guitar I ever got making money, um, I was playing at college in Wisconsin and they paid me a thousand dollars to do a house show. And this was like over 10 years ago. Um, uh, that I well, I guess boring wise made money. So it would be more, oh my God, it'd be more like 15 years ago. Oh, Jesus. Getting old. Um, um, and I bought a nylon guitar at a pawn shop in Virginia. When I got back, I was living in Virginia at the time. And um, that that guitar is the only guitar I've got left, actually. It's, um, everything I ever wrote was on that guitar. Um, oh, oh, wow. Okay. I wrote Do Love on that guitar. I wrote The Almost Great Lakes. I wrote Life is Hard. I mean, almost, I think I wrote all, almost all of them with Park on it. Yeah. Um, and then... It kind of sat as just my writing guitar for a while, and then I, I gigged it up. I rigged it up to be able to take on tour, and um, which is always kind of difficult because I feel like um, um, it's it, you know my voice and my um, the words are kind of harsh, and you know it's sort of it, I don't would say not that my voice is abrasive, but sort of the subject matter is. And I always felt that the nylon string gave a uh, accompanied, accompanied some heavier thoughts with softer tones. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always loved. I've always liked that the sound of a, of a classical of a nylon string. My girlfriend had one for a long time, like a, and yeah, I, it's a lot easier to play too, obviously. But um, oh yeah, yeah, and a lot easier to to you know pick and all that stuff. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, you um, I so so do you actually live in East Nashville now, or do you live like out of the city a little bit? Or you... I I live in Madison, which is the neighborhood right next to East Nashville. So like right above 
Do you know where D's is? That's Madison. Okay. Okay. Right on. Um, I live like a block. Okay. Have you played D's much or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> played D's a lot. I've been living in Madison long before D's was open. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I knew I knew the owners. I know the owners for the last like ten or fifteen years. So it's cool when they get the neighborhood. Okay. Um, and I was just wondering, like, how, like, so you've been in that area for quite a while. Like, can you just, t- can you talk about, like, how East Nashville has, like, um, just sort of evolved over the years? Like, from when you moved there to how it is now? Like, I was just kind of wondering, like, is there still a similar music community there? Or was it, like, a more happening place when you first got there? or? Um, well, um, hmm. it, there are, uh, still plenty of people migrating to East Nashville to play music. Right. Uh, and there are plenty of really great, uh, young writers that are, um, that have moved to a town that is becoming increasingly less accessible to um, the, to making your dreams come true or you're making your dreams turn into nightmares. Right. Um, uh, but that's kind of for like, folk, you know, maybe for singer-songwriter stuff. Like there's still plenty of stuff that's going around that's really interesting. You know what I mean? Um, but I mean, you know, I, I went down to East Nashville last night to go to Todd's joint and, um, well, it's not exactly Todd's joint, but I, I associated with Todd. Um, and, you know, there was a big, uh, there was a bunch of people I knew playing at the five spot, too. So, I mean, I guess there's still stuff going on. But East Nashville on the weekends now, it's like a it's like a tourist spot. Yeah. All these, like, bump, fist bumping clubs and, like, people walking around and, like, their, their, their Saturday night best. Um Taking selfies with each other and shit, and it's it's kind of it's, it's kind of kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, when I first moved there ten years ago, um, I was living out of my car, and I would go down to this place that took us in called the building, which uh, was uh, we had a, we ended up having a key to because me and my buddy Cameron, who I moved here with, lived in the car. Um, basically became their like janitorial staff and it was much more like you'd wake up in the morning at five points and you would see a bunch of musicians going to the local post office to to send out their flyers to where they were touring. It was much more like a, it was much more like a, like a little tiny, uh, it was more like just a safe space for artists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like it was cheap enough. I think, you know, me and my buddy rented a room and granted, I think we, we rented a, you know, we rented a room for like 250 bucks. You know what I mean? Off of uh, Douglas. Wow. You know, much more accessible, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the, um, there were a lot, um, you played like five or six times a week, you know, uh, you really, that's how you got, got any good at what you were doing is because you were playing you know the five spot one night the basement the next night uh playing b-side every wednesday night you know uh you know dino's or you were playing 
were just a family watch. You were just, you, you almost were like, you were more like on a circuit, like you would imagine stand-up comedians, where you just did 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there, 20 minutes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. All over, you know? And you really were able to sort of like, uh, for me at least, especially being very uh, audience-centric, it was very uh, important for me because I was able to... Um, own sort of, you know, audience, you know, you know, crowd, crowd works, you know, and, and how to live in songs, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sort of the militarization of your talents, you know? Yep. Um, so it was very, it was very fruitful, you know, um, and it, there was a lot to learn. It was like, a, it was like going to the gym. Um, I honestly, having been sort of out of it the last two years, you know, I, I hear different things where some folks have moved here. And they're songwriters, and they have jobs, but they're just excited to live in a place where there's music happening, and that they can play and experience music, which is really cool, uh, you know. Um, but it, it, um, I, you know, I don't know if it. Uh, I'm not an expert on what the shape of town is like now, but right. Uh, it's it's. I mean. I don't want to sound like a. I mean, if you, if you, uh, I don't want to sound like a jaded prick, but it's just uh, it doesn't have the same genetic quality. Yeah, you know. Yeah, something something there got lost, you know. But that that's natural with any scene, you know. Whether it be like, um, you know, Seattle or Portland or Austin, you know what I mean? Like it 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 commodifies itself eventually. You know what I mean? Like and. That's just unfortunately sort of the nature of art and business, having babies. Yeah. Um, do those, like, I know you said you're not as involved, but, like, do some of those open mics still exist in, in East Nashville? Um, not so much. Um, but there's, you know, you can get gigs. It's not it's not impossible. Yeah. You know, um, there's plenty of people that do it. Like, I know Brown Diner is really starting to vamp up as a, not East Nashville, but it's a, a place to play, and Dee's is a pretty accessible gig, and you know, um, but you know, I think uh, a lot of people. Uh, well, I mean, what I noticed last night being out of the town is that there were so many people that just like I felt the generational disconnect, you know, um, and that's cool, you know. I'm people are supposed to get old, you know, yeah, and then people are supposed to be young. <laughs> you know, so it's not it's not my place to tell the young people how to how to live their lives. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it, it, you know, that, that was so. It's uh, you know, it, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. Uh, it's, it it definitely doesn't belong to songwriters anymore. It doesn't feel that way. Okay. Okay. Um, but I I also you know I'm I'm just one vantage point. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, that's, I think that's pretty, yeah, that's that's a pretty good point, though. Like, it, it's just that, you know, like a scene happens and then it collapses and, and, and yeah, exactly. Like, you got to let the 20-somethings, I guess, do what they do what they want with it. Um, but, yeah, I remember the last time I was there, it was, 
you know, just being in like vintage clothing stores in East Nashville and stuff, I, I just heard a lot of conversations going on about people moving from LA or New York or whatever. And, um, it definitely did seem like it was, uh, becoming too hip for itself or something like that. But, uh, Hey, you know, like I say, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. Well, um, you know, I would say that, um, Respond to one of these. I just got a call. I respond to text. Doing an interview. I'm famous. Um, <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, like, not to plug myself, but the answer to that question is really on advertisement. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I felt like that was that was my uh, my my opinion. Yeah. On. Uh, on a lot of things, um, you know, not to cite myself, but that definitely was a heavy topic of conversation and, uh, on that record. Yeah. Um, and sort of the confusing world of where Americana stays tied to tradition and what is Americana and what is its place and relevancy and, and, you know, yes. And also what is, you know, what is a town that a city that's, growing look like you know what i mean yep yep to an old budget that is unfortunately a grown-up holding caulfield you know exactly i uh, I, I feel you there yeah you know I, it's something that i got told in the mental institution they were looking at me and said i thought about that book in years and they were like you know you're a fucking grown-up holding caulfield <laughs> i was like god damn you're fucking right aren't you that is fucking true i'd take that as a compliment <laughs> Yeah, kind, I mean, kind of. It's like, um, you know, um, um, I, I will cite the uncoolest writer here, but it's like, um, uh, you know, a little known fact, I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. Um, if I ever made it to, like, Bob Dylan level of stardom, I would have done exactly what Bob Dylan did with Frank Sinatra, but with Billy Joel. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I think that he is the American songbook. But to cite Billy Joel in one of his great masterpieces called uh, The Angry Young Man, um, uh, he's never been able to learn from mistakes so he can't understand why his heart always breaks. Right, uh, right. <laughs> that's the downside of being uh, a grown-up old in Caulfield. Yeah. Is, <laughs> is uh, Billy Joel from New Jersey, or is he from New York? He's from Long Island, which, I mean, is all the same. Yeah territory yeah yeah I, but, uh, but he was he, he was why i became a songwriter i heard the ballad of billy as a kid at eight and decided that that's what i wanted to do with my life okay so i studied him really until i was about 12 and i got into punk rock and then i found bob dylan was and then, yeah was, was your mom and dad or mom or dad like billy joel fans or how did you hear him no my my parents had uh, my my parents had uh, my mom was a big Elton John fan. Okay, she used to listen to Elton John on the circus. Um, and my dad was kind of uh, my dad. Weirdly, he's like, oh, my adoptive father rather is. Uh, I use my dad for all intents and purposes, but um, he's like a Leonard Skinner Judas Priest guy. Okay. But then he's also a big Lucinda Williams, Lyle Lovett guy. Like, he's kind of like, he's actually the only person in my family that really understood what the Americana genre was when I was coming up in it. 
Right. So it was super helpful because you'd be kind of sending letters back home, so to speak, being like, you don't understand. I just, I just opened for Robert O'Keen and like, you know, everyone in New Jersey goes like, who the hell's Robert O'Keen? You know what I mean? I just opened for Todd Snyder. Okay. Like who the fuck is Todd Snyder? You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. My dad was able to kind of put the pieces together and, and like really see sort of that world. Uh, and it was super helpful because it was kind of alienating being a northerner, um, down in Nashville and not really being able to relay um, or be able to contextualize what your uh, what your um, what your world is yeah yeah um, yeah I forgot that you opened for Robert O'Keen that's uh, that's really cool um, I just like I'd only heard like up until maybe a month ago or a couple of months ago, I had really only heard, um, uh, the album with Corpus Christi Bay on it. Um, that song song is so fucking good, dude. Oh, I know, man. It is so fucking good. Yeah. Um, it, it is such a good fucking song. Um, I like a lot of Robert's stuff and he was really awesome to open for, but that song is so fucking good. I hear you, man. I, I, uh, and, and, but I, so I'd only heard that or whatever, but then I just recently kind of went through his whole catalog and, um, I really dig, you know, the Gringo Honeymoon record and, um, and that song, I think it's called Wild Winds. Um, I mean, he's just written some, uh, he's written some really, really brilliant stuff and I didn't really realize, like, I remember listening to Todd years ago and him saying, like, you know, the road goes on forever and the party never ends. And I knew that was referencing Robert O'Keefe, but, like, I don't know. I guess I, I thought I was too cool for Robert O'Keefe or something back when I was, like, in my early 20s. But um, just going through his catalog recently, I'm like, holy fuck, man, this guy's an incredible songwriter. Sidebar on that is one time on tour, I, um, I tried to map out... Um, um, beer run. Oh. It's, it's not actually, it's not actually possible with the destinations that he gives to accomplish the goals that he said that you get accomplished. <laughs> um, so I remember I, I Google mapped all the locations, uh, we, you know, drove all night from Abilene. Wasn't gonna, it wasn't going to happen. There was no way you were going to drive all the way from Abilene to Santa Cruz. Right. Um, and I, I, and I also, I think I also, was like, well, the thing is, is that I would imagine Robert being from Texas is that like, uh, he plays Texas a lot. So like, why would you, why would you drive all the way to Santa Cruz to, uh, when obviously he's going to be playing some sort of, you know, festival or something. Anyway, I, I did, I, I did a deep dive rabbit hole on the logistics of beer run. Nice. Um, not because I think there's anything wrong with the song. It's just that, um, you know, and I love Todd, but, uh, um, I get kind of caught up on, on, on little details like that that uh, that that interests me. Yeah, yeah, so do I. But but Robert's stuff, it was kind of cool that tour, man. Because uh, I'm not trying to brag or nothing, but um, you know, people have been so like Robert's team fans are are fucking insane, and they love all the songs. One one thing I'm going to give a lot of credit to Robert for is I opened for him, and he never did the same set twice. Like, he played all the same songs, but usually, like, when you go out with folks, they kind of, like, do the same jam, and that's cool, you know what I mean? Like, it's, you're, you know, it's, it's strenuous, and it's an operation, 
and it's, you know, you got to do your thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and do what works. Uh, no judgment. But Robert just played, uh, it just was a different set every night. And there would be this, there was, I remember it was after I'd be at the merch stand with my, uh, my tour manager at the time, Papa Squat. And, uh, uh, and you would be talking to people and then all of a sudden it was, uh, you hear from the, uh, you're at the merch stand and you hear from the, 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 the hall, uh, Sherry was a waitress and the whole <laughs> fucking place would explode. Right. Like people just, like they just went fucking bananas. And you would see a look on Robert's face that you just knew that he, like, embraced that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he just embraced that moment. Uh, and the other cool thing about that was is, is we didn't, I didn't really know, and I, I don't know Robert super well, but um, the sort of rumor had it that, uh, you know, a lot of people got chewed off of the opening slot. Like, there had been war stories of people that were like, I opened for Robert O'Keefe in the middle of my set. Um, I heard people, uh, people just start chanting, Robert Earl King, Robert Earl King. <laughs> like, so it was, it's like a really tough gig, you know, because they're, 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 that's their dude, you know? And, um, I went out there with a guitar for, for, for the tour and I, and I, um, and I'm not trying to brag, but it's one of my proudest moments in music is that I, I shut up a Robert Earl King audience for a week and a half. Wow. Uh, where you can hear a pin up with just me and a guitar. And what was cool about it is, is one by one, like a band member would come down and like the first night was like, holy shit, this guy's not getting even alive. What's up with that? And then the next night, two band members showed up. It was like, holy shit, this guy's not getting even alive. What's going on with that? So the third night, three band members. The fourth night, I'm standing outside smoking a cigarette and there's Robert O'Keefe comes off his bus and he's like, I hear you've been doing well, kid. <laughs> you know, and you're like, all right. That's awesome. Cool. That's and, awesome. Uh, and he was he was really he was really gracious. He had a lot of really good um, points of view, and um, was a uh, um, was a uh, a very interesting guy to uh, to talk to. And uh, I appreciate his um, his um, his legacy. I think he he did a really good job. One thing he explained to me is that it was sort of like. Uh, he was at the tail end of a whole crew that got got their slice of the pie, and I think he struggled a little while to like find his footing, you know. And yep. that, and, uh, and he did, and and he he made a, a, a true legacy out of it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, you know, it's not it's not even as well known up in uh, you know the south uh, down in the southeast, you know. I mean, it's a very Texas West thing you know and there's some people that are really into it but he's everywhere he goes and it's sold the fuck out and uh he really gives the people what they want which is something i really respect out of performers you know what i mean especially if you have like a like a stabilized career of like you know loyal fans like you owe something to them you know what i mean they're the ones paying your bills you yeah. know like um yeah absolutely you know you ought to you know you ought to give them what they want you know what i mean you know, don't sacrifice your artistic integrity for that. But if 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 you didn't want to give them something that they wanted, you shouldn't have wrote it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, you know, uh, so I that and so his crowd and opening for Todd was was probably because that's really all I ever made it to was a well thought out opener. I never really put butts in the seats outside of Nashville. 
Right. Um, um, but Todd's audience was always really gracious and fun. And um, I'm really appreciative for, for that because uh, Todd was one of the reasons I moved down here. I remember doing South by Southwest with my band, Big Wilson River, in like 2010. And this was before, I mean, there were still iPods and stuff, but I think I actually had a CD player and um, a portable disc man still. Right. And um, we were in this van heading to South by to play our, because uh, I, 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 was, I was an indie kid growing up and also a punk kid and also a writer kid. I was a lot of different things, you know, like I, there wasn't really a box. I just loved words and rhythms and feelings. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, you know, you know, my favorite band is The Replacements, but I'm also a huge Todd Snyder and Billy Joel fan. You know, it's kind of, it crosses the gamut, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But I remember trying to show the guys and, and uh, the, the folks in the band, Todd, and they were from the Northeast, and for some reason they just didn't get it. They were like, is this guy a comedian? Is he a songwriter? I'm like, no, he's sort of hanging on the limb of sanity and, and presenting truths and... and, and putting them in a funny way and um you know um and he was part of the reason i moved to east nashville i was like him and johnny fritz i was like well if those two dudes live down here i want to i want to be where the action is you know i want to be where the songs are and where they're being made yeah is, you know? is that guy and, uh, still is that guy still uh, making music johnny corndog or johnny fritz no he's, he's a real estate agent in la and um you know, I think he had a similar wall too, where there's, you know, I'm sure he does well, probably better than me as far as uh, touring goes. But, uh, you know, you, you hit a wall where it's like, you know, you're, uh, you know, yeah, I just never got butts in seats. And I, I, I never got butts in seats, but I would get like 10 or 15 that were willing to drive like three or four hours yeah. in every city. Yeah. And I would love. I would. I wish I had an email list with all of them on it, and we could agree on one spot. And I would show up once a year, and 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 go to that one spot, and we'll just we'll just do a show, and then we'll call it a day. Yeah. Um, because it was cool that you know I didn't have the numbers, but I had I had the uh, the, the people that did come out to see me were were extremely passionate about it, you know, and and were. They knew every word, and they were they were diehards. And, and you know, on some level, I, I kind of wear that a little bit as a badge of honor, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, not to, again, not to be too proud of myself. I mean, if my therapist hears this and senses any semblance of self-esteem, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, you know, if your writing connects with uh, even, you know, five or 10 people, I think that's a good feeling, let alone, you know, a bunch of people that, so, so that was kind of your, like, that was like the reason that you sort of retired them was just, you just kind of hit a wall and just felt like it was time to hang it up. Well, I mean, that was, that was, uh, part of it. But a lot of it, it was more of a creative choice is that I really, I, I didn't, I, one day I woke up and I asked myself, do I have anything left to say? I hadn't written, you know, I'd written compulsively for the last 15 years, you know? Right. Where there was always song on my mind. And then that kind of slowed down um, during the pandemic. Um, and I, I hate to even say that because I try not to even, it's like, 
like the big blemish. You know what I mean? Like, who the fuck were we? Why? Why? Why were we also? You know, I'm, I'm glad that we freaked out, but like, just like every, you see all these artists, like during the time that we have to all stay inside, <laughs> just shut up. Yeah. Um, just, like, don't even bring it up. Like, let's just resume, okay? Yeah, I hear. Um, oh yeah, for sure. Um, but I and that just stopped moving that that muscle, and then one day, and I gave it a lot of time. And then I asked myself, you know, uh, I kind of like, you know, I don't listen to myself very often, but I kind of listen to, you know, not the EPs on Bandcamp, but the three major albums. And I asked myself, do I have anything else to add to this? And, uh, and I, and I didn't, you know, and I sat with that for a while, you know, because I didn't want to make a statement that, um, was out of anything besides the best choice for, for my work. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, best choice for the catalog. You know, um, and uh, that 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 was a big part of it. You know, a big part of it was, um, um, um. I just I felt like I said what I needed to say. You know, in those three albums, I'm, I'm proud of them. I Do didn't, you know, I I have the biggest career, but I also didn't compromise. Yeah, and um, and I'm. I'm proud of not compromising. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that makes a lot of sense. Well, do, do you still like write for fun at all anymore? Like, no, I've never written for fun in the day of my life. No, none of it was ever. It was just the result. It was like, uh, uh, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. There was a certain high you would get upon completion, but it was always a painful, obsessive process. Yeah. Cause I never really wrote anything. So, like, writing was always, like, sitting at the piano and talking to myself until something made me laugh, and then repeating that over and over and over and over again until the next line naturally evolved into what it's supposed to be, and then repeating those two lines over and over and over again until the next line was an approach, and it was always one Kerouacian stream of paper, you know what I mean? There was never a pause or a break. Like, I, I wrote chronologically with the song, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, I think there's probably three songs that I can think off the top of my head that ever like hit paper, like work it out. Right. But it was always just, and then the, the sort of logic behind that is that, well, if I can remember it, then the likelihood of something of it being memorable to somebody else, uh, is, is higher. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's really but, interesting. You know, yeah. really when, when you're performing, I mean, you're when you're performing a 45 minute or a 90 minute set or a 30 minute set or a 10 minute set, you're taking away 10 minutes of somebody's life they're never getting back. Yeah. Uh, so if you waste their time, like you, you're, you are, you, you are then a, a carcinogen. Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have added to their death. Yeah. Um, without giving any any reward. <laughs> yeah. For, for them giving you a, a even if it's 10 minutes a chunk of their life is dedicated to watching your ass up there um say what you have to say so like you know make your fucking point you know what i mean yeah and and you do that well i mean your your music and your lyrics have never ever been boring to me and there's just there's like an immediacy to them and like an honesty that like it makes you it makes you sit up and listen like and i think you're I think that's really interesting that like, you know, you were talking just about like not wasting people's time and, and not writing anything down because I think, you know, whatever comes out of you in the moment is, you know, 
uh, or, or immediately is probably going to be the most interesting to other people too. Like people can get, I think some writers, I mean, there's different ways of writing, but some writers I think can get bogged down in the revision process and, you know, and uh, end up boring a lot of people too, maybe. I don't know. Well, I, I think I, I agree with that. And I, I agree that um, I also think that, um, you know, for me, um, what, what do I want to say here is that, um, you know, it, and when you repeat the line over and over again, you are editing because you're whittling it down to its most conversational form. Right. And you're, you're getting rid of the fluff. And then the final sort of test of that is that you've whittled it down to its best and most clear and concise um, form. And then you test it with an audience, and then you'll slowly, over a couple months, whittle it down. You know what I mean? And like, oh, there's an extra weird syllable here with this word, or this word actually feels more comfortable on stage than another word. You know, it's, it's all about sort of a... a um, balance you know and, and and really you know for me it's it was um it was always about it being sort of um you know really really respecting respecting the audience and i think the other thing that kind of made me want to retire is that not that i was somebody huge or big or anything but it, it what got weird about it was Oh shit, okay. was that 
when I, I get up there, you know, only 25 people in this theater know who the fuck I am. You know what I mean? But, like, I'm not going to waste their time. Right. So, like, I've got, I've got to identify myself quickly as where I belong in this. And you walk out on the amphitheater stage, you say, hey, this is a love song. Anyone, you know, anyone here in love and you dedicate it to somebody. And then you open up and you say, our love is like a mess lab in your mother's basement. And all of a sudden, the stage goes from being six foot high to right on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And we're all on the same level. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And that was something that was really important to me. You know what I mean? Um, that I wanted people at my shows to feel like we were all on the same. Like, I am literally just a dude that if you had dedicated as much time to the, to the, to, to this, you would have come up with similar results that I did. <laughs> There's nothing especially unique about my brain that isn't just practice and, and constant commitment to craftsmanship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, who's Jared Dickinson? Who he he is a guy that is uh, he tours with his wife Wardy and uh, he does a lot of really cool stuff. He's a really cool dude. Um, and he but he has a really big following over in England. Okay, like a really big. And uh, he's very good. He's very kind of like um, he's got sort of that thing. He's got a real earnesty to his voice. Is something good? I'm not going to say they're like. I don't think they're like Jim Croce. They don't sound like Jim Croce, but he has sort of this like seventies tenor, like not tenor and like, like like you know like the other meaning of tenor. Um, that just is really authentic and earnest, and um, and he's a great showman, uh, fantastic showman, and and a hell of a guy. I I mean I was a fucking wreck on that tour because I hate flying. Oh okay. I hate flying. I had in the entire world and they were so kind to me with my anxieties and weird shit and they they were just there. and they're two really stand up people um, if we want the second half can be about the shit bags in this business <laughs> <laughs> that's cool there's a there's a guy here in Canada Daniel Romano is his name and um He's a, a pretty good artist, pretty good songwriter, but he takes a ship over to, uh, he takes like a cargo ship over to Europe when he tours. And, uh, we talked about that and we cited Daniel Romano. I said, I want, I told my manager at the time, like, get me on a ship. Daniel Romano takes a ship. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, he lives about an hour from me here and, uh, I've been a pretty big fan of his for a while, but yeah, I remember him uh said he takes like two weeks to get over to to his shows in europe i thought that was pretty cool but he, he's got this in vinegar to him he's a little uh he's a little heady for me sometimes but i, I respect what he does yeah yeah you know? yeah um so and it's a tough battle to try to make high art um in uh in americana you know high art really isn't understood it is sort of supposed to be the people's art you know yeah like, understand that he Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and he kind of more like he's kind of morphed in and out of different genres. Like you know, he has like a that straight up country record, and he's done stuff that almost sounds like you know British folk. And then he does like yeah. some Bob Dylan rock and roll stuff. And yeah, he's um, he's kind of a chameleon in that way. But <clears throat> which is a valid perspective to hold as an artist in this era. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. 
I want to know the same author in every book, you know? Yeah. You know, like, like a Vonnegut book is a Vonnegut book, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, it's a valid perspective. My buddy Aaron Lee is like that, you know? He does a bunch of different shit. He crosses a bunch of different genres. And, um, you know, and, and that's valid in, in today's playlist shuffle world, you know? Do you mean Taz Jim? Uh, T- T- Aaron Lee? Yeah, T- Taz, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so uh, it's just not not a method that I subscribe to personally. Right, right. Um, you yeah. know. Um, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, man, I just wanted to, uh, like, just talk a little bit about, uh, like, see, so you were born in Union City, New Jersey. Is that right? Born in Union City, New Jersey. Okay. Nineteen eighty-six. Becoming an old fuck. And um, it, Elmwood Park is that like part of Union City or is that like near Union City? Uh, Elmwood Park is a neighborhood near Patterson. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, I used Elmwood Park, um, the name because I liked it. Um, but it's actually based off a true story. I didn't play much sports as a kid. That is an actual memory. Oh, really? Um, yeah, no, that that, that happened. Um, that happened. It's probably the only. It's probably the only. Not they're, they're all truths, but that's the only like probably verbatim thing that I've ever written that was actually based on uh, um, a specific and very very valid memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a very relatable song because I, I played baseball as a kid too and uh yeah um yeah that song always that song definitely uh hit me when i first heard it for sure um, um yeah but yeah. that's that park is, is, a, is a neighborhood sort of near there okay okay cool um now did you go into the city much when you were a kid oh all the time you did um, okay i was suburbs as I got old as I got a bit older um and then I took but not far like six miles away from Manhattan yeah um and uh, I took the bus in every weekend and I would go to the village and I would buy Bob Dylan CDs or some vinyl or Simon and Garfunkel records and all that stuff and I would I would listen to them the entire way on the way home and then I would sit in my room I remember in high school I was in this apartment as my parents got divorced and I, my, my room was lime green and I would just put it on the boombox and I would just stare at the ceiling and I would memorize every word wow. and really take it in um, um, just just religiously um, and finding all of these albums that were um, um, meaningful to me in Greenwich Village and it was because I was in you know, the town I moved to was Dumont, and it was a more of a sort of a, like a Bruce Springsteen Irish Catholic town. You right, know? yeah. Uh, and, and you know, you'd be surprised how many people had never been anywhere but Madison Square Garden being only six, six miles away from Manhattan. And so my way out was by going to Manhattan and exploring. I would just explore it for hours. Awesome, uh, yeah. I would take the bus there, and, and uh, it became, uh, and I would listen to some buskers. There were some, there were some heavy, there were some busking folk singers in Washington Square Park and stuff like that. And, and I would 
go to the, I, I was vegetarian and vegan at the time. So I found a vegan restaurant that I would go get breakfast to every, every, uh, every time and walk through St. Mark's, which was a, a big, like, punk haven of the day. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, then I would, I would, but I would buy these CDs and I would, I would have maybe enough for like two of them. So I would spend like an hour looking for like, cause it wasn't like the days that are now where you can get all these, like, you can get all this context about records. You know what I mean? So like you, you kind of were just basing it on like whatever you saw on VH1's behind the music and like, and like sort of like what, what you, you had seen or heard about before, you know what I mean? And like, Oh, this Dylan album looks interesting and it, Oh, it happens to be desire, you know? And then you, you listen to it and you absorb it. And, um, and that was Simon and Garfunkel with Joni Mitchell, with, um, Leonard Cohen, um, Tom Waits, all, all of the, all of the seventies greats. And then, uh, that was, uh, it was just, it was just, um, it was the Bible to me, you know. Did, did you go into, uh, did you go into town with like buddies, or were you like a, were you kind of a? Just mostly by myself. Yeah. Um, okay. Like thirteen or fourteen years old, walking around Greenwich Village, uh, and walking around all of it, you know, because I, I loved the accessibility. I didn't get my driver's license until I was twenty-one. Oh wow! I just took the bus. Yeah. Um, okay. And you, you know, I loved it because I would take last week's records with me and I'd listen to them the whole way through. And there was all these really great folk artists that like nobody gives credit to from like the New York metropolitan area in the nineties. Uh, not necessarily from the new, but Northern Americana, if you want to say, say like that, I guess, but like your Dan Burns, your Greg Brown, right. your Dar Williams, you like those were, those were just as impactful to me. Like I, it, any recommendation that I would give to someone who wants to write songs, study Dar Williams' The Honesty Room, and you will you will need everything you need to know about quality songwriting is in that. So there was this whole like '90s coffee shop sort of folk singer that never really got the credit it deserved, in my opinion. Um, like John Gorka, you know what I mean? Uh, okay. Uh, you know. Uh, got this one song i'm from new jersey and uh but you know so like i I also kind of really really dug into them and also at the same time was also like a neutral milk hotel head and also was like uh you know pavement meat puppets modest mouse you know so like my tastes were across the board you know and yeah i I think um, i tried to reflect that in the last album you know i um the last album was a bit of a stretch for the average Americana listener, but um, um, I felt like it. Uh, it was going to be. It was. It was where I, I was actually heavily influenced by uh, uh, Carolyn Rhodes. I don't know if you ever listened to her. But she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just. Um, I, I, think her, I just listened to her new I, her new record. There, uh, she just released one, right? Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but I, I get obsessed. Like um, um, that first record of hers, Longer, I'm still obsessed with, and uh, I liked the one that came out after it. But uh, um, I thought Longer was so fucking good. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was like, and if you look at early videos of her, she's an Americana artist. You know what I 
doing like the the singer songwriter thing with the guitar and like one day she must have woke up and said like fuck this like what do i express yeah you know what do i and i that was heavily influential to me when i wanted to make advertisement um um because that could have went a whole different way um because talking dogs was pretty critically acclaimed enough so then we had enough label power with anti that like if i wanted to like shack up with some big time producer i probably could have you know right and it probably would have been part of business choice you know i mean we could have been like hey mike mogus do you want to like like because you know this guy's like an angry dude like Carter at first you make his album <laughs> and um then you give a producer a lot of money and they don't really give a shit about what you do and the labels bank on it because they hope that it reads in the bylines that it was produced by somebody important so that people listen to it and it's really a failed bullshit model on how to do things yeah it's either good or not matter who produces them <laughs> um um not that producers don't matter but it doesn't matter what you could put as you could stack as many names as you want on a fucking record if it's a fucking box of fucking turds and it's a box of fucking turds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so I went the other way with advertisement and I just used a very minimal budget, but a bigger budget than I ever had before, to just employ all of my buddies who had been working with me for the last five years. They were the engineers on talking dogs. Um my buddy Ryan Saab, who is probably my him and Rayvon Pettis are my favorite Nashville songwriters. Uh, but I used his band because, and so what we had was, is we just, instead of making a choice that would escalate my career, we made a choice to sort of like really see what we, what a bunch of no names could fucking do to make a record. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, it's probably, you know, so it, it, it's uh, we made that choice, and you know, and, and we were all glad we did. You know what I mean? And uh, um, you know, so yeah, I, I actually just I, guess, I just downloaded the uh, a bunch of Ryan Saab and the and the Dead Mall on your recommendation. I've got to go ahead and listen to it, but you uh, you spoke pretty highly of him, so I got to go and listen to him now. Yeah, he's uh, his, I like his records. Um, uh, I produced the one still waiting that was an original recording we did when he first moved to town because he lived in my house for a while okay uh, and i like his records and they do a great job and they're fucking awesome but it's I, I i'll tell you if you really want to grind his gears find him on instagram send him a message and tell him darren wants you to send him send you a version of two phones acoustic okay okay his song two phones is is perhaps the greatest fucking like one of the greatest songs I've ever heard, and the the band version is good, but the nuance of the lyrics on that is really, um, really fucking fantastic. Okay, um, I'm gonna write that down then. Oh, yeah, all right. two songs. Have you listened to Rayvon Pettis at all? No, but I I saw the Brooklyn Vegan article where you like recommended a bunch of people that you really love, and I saw his name on there, but yeah. I don't know him either. Uh. uh um start with um him and ryan did a split and um it's really good it's really acoustic stuff and then um but he does this one song called uh uh Lali and abdullah and it's basically a jack and diane that takes place in afghanistan oh wow that's cool per- it's perhaps the most um unique 
unique and amazing song I've ever heard. Um, I I still I love all of Rayvon's material because like a lot of writers, you know, like if you look at my work, you can dissect it like a, like a motor of a car and be like, okay, here's this influence, here's this influence. This is what this guy took from in his influences and and, and what he's about and how he crafted that. But a guy like Rayvon, it's not. It's just a, it's a singular voice that there's no way to construct or deconstruct it. It's just a absolute random set of experiences that created this one particular kind of person that can only write that writes this one particular kind of song that I don't think anyone could ever write again. Wow! Uh, it just taps into a vein beyond Bob Dylan in my mind. You know what I mean? Like that's. Um, uh, that's that's my opinion on Raymond, and Ryan would agree. I think Ryan and I both kind of sit there and go like, "Fuck, man, this is this this is this is where it's really at." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, speaking of uh, Ryan's Instagram or whatever, what's your um like? What's your relationship to social media these days? Do you do you fuck with it at all? <laughs> no, I don't. I I made a retirement post. And then I just made my, and, and, and it was like winter last year, I think before Christmas. And then I posted for the first time a couple of days ago saying, hey, I'm still alive. Okay. Um, uh, but I don't, um, well, it, it, social media, I mean, like, it, it's, I, I'm more on the TikTok side of things. Like, I don't exist on it, but, um, all of our previous social medias before um, before TikTok were predicated on local networks. Can you hold on one second? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Just hold on. I'm sorry. It's a business. It's a work thing. No problem, man. No problem. Yeah, I'm here. Um, so, um, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, all, all those previous social medias were predicated on networks that you knew in, like, real life. Yeah. So they become kind of frustrating because you're, like, inundated with, like, people you know and they're posturing themselves in a certain way and you're posturing yourself in a certain way and you don't know it and you, like, hate yourself and you hate everybody else. TikTok is, like, the big city. You know, I mean, like you don't fucking know anybody on there. It's way less stressful, you know. Right, right. Uh, so, like, I, I just don't fuck with it. I mean, um, you know, I'm still deciding what it is exactly that I want to do, and I've, I've kept it up for the last couple months. But you know, it's not, it's not something that's really like important to me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. And it, and it never was, and I think that's kind of what created sort of the lure of like is this guy okay? Because every so often I would, you know, I would post something that was sort of impassioned or emboldened about something, but also not trying to be like virtue signaling or anything like that. And yeah. It's it, ki- it kind of reminds me of, you were talking about modest mouse and it kind of reminds me of, uh, 
like that line that Isaac Brock has in that song Lives, where it's like if if uh, you know if you knew everything they thought, I bet you wish they'd just shut up or something like that. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, and I I always thought yeah, that's a pretty good that's a good succinct way of how I think about it too. Like it's I just kind of get annoyed when I go on there, so I try. Yeah, everybody does. So why are we still on there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I was literally out last night. So this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. I was out last night with some people I had not seen in a while. Hi, Terry, who I've known for a long time. He goes, well, Darren, you posted a cryptic Instagram. <laughs> and the Instagram literally me and my dog in the chair, like I'm just talking to you, saying, hey, just want to let you update. I just, you know, just want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm alive. And I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, like, how is that cryptic? <laughs> just saying, hey, like, life's going all right. Like, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's so much that people infer just by, it, it, and it carries such a heavy weight. Yeah, they take and, it way um, too seriously, yeah. It way too seriously, you know? <laughs> and um, and it, it's, uh, it's almost like, Victor- like, Instagram compared to TikTok is like, it's like Victorian versus vaudeville. You know, it's like there's this Victorian air to the way we're supposed to behave and posture ourselves on Instagram. But TikTok is more just like, it's more like folk art. It's more like you just capture shit with your phone and you're like, this makes complete sense to me. This is funny as hell. This is interesting as hell. This is a slice of the world that's actually happening unfiltered. Yeah. You know, and just a, a much wider plane of, uh, of, uh, of existence and I love it because I tried to make a couple TikToks uh, when it first got on and they didn't go anywhere and I was like you know what uh, this isn't for me but I am here to just enjoy this I'm just enjoying this passively yeah and uh, it was hugely hugely uh, enjoyable okay okay cool I haven't really spent any time on TikTok so maybe I'll uh, you know give it a give it a watch or something and see what's what's up with it but <laughs> the way to do it is don't follow anybody okay and then all the options is your how long you watch something and you'll end up on all strange worlds of tiktok that like you would just like this weird underbelly like i get i get left-wing shit i get right-wing shit i get conspiracy shit i get like religious shit and I get like funny like like life in the ghetto kind of shit because I guess it knows my location and my economic class <laughs> um so it, you know like it's just uh it, it's really a, a wild um um but if you start following people then you get then you get kind of sucked into the into it knowing you yeah I don't want to know me as, I only wanted to know me as well as yeah, yeah. I heard you say one time about like just watching. You just all you try to do is just watch like the PBS News Hour, and uh, you know, and and just try to filter out all the other opinions and just get your news for like one hour per day, watching PBS. And uh, I, I like that. <laughs> and Judy Woodruff, who was my celebrity crush for a long time, just retired. Oh was no! The anchor for PBS News Hour. Yeah. God, you could just so great about her. She would just spit the facts, yeah. But her opinion all in her eyes, right? And it was so fucking brilliant. Like her commitment to just spitting the facts, 
but it would sort of like it, her frustration would seed out of her eyes. Yeah. And and her commitment to staying true to that was something that I respected so fucking much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I I, um, I try to watch all the news. I wanted to mention, uh, you, you know, you you talked about Craig Finn a lot, and uh, I went back and listened to uh, "I Need a New War" and um, and that song. Uh, it's never been a fair fight. Is that the song? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I forgot how good that "I Need a New War" album is. Fuck, I I listened to it a couple times when it first came out, but I, then I went back and listened to it and uh, again, and fuck, that's a great album and. Um, yeah, and he has a. I mean, God damn it! Everybody has a podcast, but I do. He has a podcast now called uh, "That's How I Remember It." And yeah, did you have you listened to any of that? No, I I, I tend to stray away from uh, I I stray away from conversations about music. I'm sure it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, like it's pretty but, good, but. But yeah, what were you gonna say? Uh, well, just uh, yeah, like I, I get, I get that. I mean, some people just don't really care about interviews either, and that's fine. But like, I just, um, but yeah, he interviews a bunch of, you know, sort of brilliant, yeah, you know, d- different different musicians, and uh, it's it's quite good. I mean, yeah, for sure. No, I, I definitely, I, I, I want to. I for me, he's such. Uh, I got the party with him once. Um, oh, cool! Many, many. We were doing this thing with this band, The Front Bottoms, that I kind of grew up with in New York. And he was, he and I were both guests on this like big festival they were doing, doing shows and stuff. And uh, he was one of the coolest guys, man. I just, I, I, I had just gotten into the whole study, and he just put out his first record, which was super religious. Um, but it was still really fucking good. He always has that sort of doubting Thomas point of view on, a, on religion. Yeah. Like you, you, you. You hear him wrestle with his doubt, which I think is what most people want out of religious people. You know what I mean? It's like, where is your, where is your sense of questioning? And uh, but anyway, long story short, um, I to me he's such a mythical figure that like he like everything I want from him I get out of his writing. So I don't, and, and I miss that. You know, I miss that about um, music in general. You know, I, I miss that you didn't really know these people. You know what I mean? Like, you just knew their work, you know? And, and there's something to be said about getting to know people, you know? But, like, and that's not to say that I think that your your podcast is awesome. And I think it's great that people, that, that artists can be more, um, be more transparent about who they really are and what they do and, have a larger identity than just sort of writing stuff. But to me, I just, I, everything I want out of Craig Finn, I get from his writing. You know what I mean? I wouldn't want to know the guy. Wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to hear too many interviews about him. I totally uh, get that. I know? totally get that. Yeah, for and, sure. And, uh, and, and not that it would ruin it. It's just that that's, that's the way I, I, you know, call me old fashioned, but it's like what you get from the artist is the, is, is their art. Yeah, you know everything else is sort of um, shouldn't be that important, you know. Um, not that you should never do interviews, but like, you know, it's it's like it's not, you know. But but I need a new war, dude. I can't. I I still can't stop listening to it. Um, there was this um, 
Yeah. Um, which, I mean, like, you know, you got to think about it. It's just a Civil War reference. It's fucking amazing. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I, I actually found a dead bird outside the mental hospital, and I buried it. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I remember I was, because death and compulsions towards death and, and, and fear of death, but also wanting death were all of these sort of parts of my OCD. And, um, and it, it was just, I remember, I remember it was up, I was up in Wisconsin where I, where I got treatment and, um, it was towards the end of the day and it was, it was, summer was starting to die and, and the light was coming through the trees in this real rural area next to a lake. And I was on the grounds walking around and I saw this dead bird and I just, I just compulsively was like, you know what, I'm going to bury this bird. And, um, and all the patients in the hospital, in my, we were, I was in a specialized OCD anxiety wing for that residential treatment. They just, there was this big, there was this, this like, like open glass, and they all were watching me bury this dead bird. And the entire time, I was singing to myself uh, that line and that song where he's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, try to save something small, you know, right, and, and that, that was so. And then it's fucking, I mean, what a great line in Punk is Not a Fair Fight. Hardcore is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> like, it's just it's yeah. so fucking good. I know, man. Um, yeah. So fucking good. And then he, uh, he does um, that <clears throat> that end verse where he's like, uh, you know, uh, where he's at the service say, you know, I, I just saw him, uh, I just, and, and his, he's sort of seething where he's, I, I think that that song, I, I, this is not facts, but from what I can surmise is that song is about this sort of uh, punk dude who died in the Minnesota area. He was this sort of like Asian uh, homeless punk dude. Okay. I think. I'm completely wrong about that. But the way he just is like, you know, uh, he, how he juxtaposes what the public opinion of this one person was and what he sees this person as. Uh, as you know, I, I just remember snapping off the filters. You know what I mean? Right. Um, you know, like, uh, everyone is, uh, everyone's talking about his song and his laughter. Uh, I guess I'm still not sure. You know what I mean? I saw him snap off the filters. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And yeah. I don't know, that to me is what quintessentially is, is amazing about his perspective. And on that album, I mean, fucking A, like, um, I need a new war. Um, the the I mean, just the magic marker song, like fucking a dude. Like, how do you fucking create such a complex character that you feel like you know and understand, and you're only get it? You're getting tidbits in his writing that should feel like information you only know if you already know the context of the story. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 But no. You somehow feel like you connect with it, like you know this. Yeah. Like you, like you know. When he references, you know, uh, I was working at my uncle's place. You know what I mean? Like, you just fucking, like, you know, like, what he means and what he's trying to convey and this, this extremely personal experience. Yeah, like um, like in that song, Holyoke. Uh, I think it's Holyoke where he's, yeah. like, talking about, you know, you were, I think it was, like, I was driving and you were smoking or you were driving and I was smoking or something. And, yeah, he, yeah. he just invites you into these little... Uh, these little corners where you, yeah, you just feel like you're there for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's 
it's almost like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there is the Craig Finn universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And once once you kind of get it, it's like you you just you you just it, it feels like a world that you belong in. At least to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I never. Uh, uh, so I, I, I've, I'm pretty glued to Craig Finn. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah. Anyway, man. So uh, I'm down to keep talking, but I don't know how long your podcasts usually run. Yeah, man. I won't. I won't keep you for much longer. I was just wondering, just a couple more. Like, um, how? Why? Oh, why did you go to Madison for treatment? Or was it Wisconsin? Uh, was, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, well, I was suffering from. I didn't know that I was suffering from severe OCD. I checked myself into the psych ward here at Vanderbilt. Okay. Um, and then um, I spent a week there, and I was diagnosed with OCD and a severe OCD, severe OCPD, and severe PTSD. Okay. Um, they started me on medication. It wasn't really quite enough. And then I started working with this hospital called Rogers, which is a, sort of a nationally recognized OCD expert. Oh, okay. And I was, doing, I, was doing in, I was doing outpatient there and then was kind of struggling so much that they booted me up to residential. Um, and then I spent three months at their residential facility at Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. I see. Uh, three or four. Um, and that's why I taught myself how to paint and to do art and um, manage OCD and manage, uh, you know, manage that kind of stuff. You, um, you know? Do you feel like you have a, a handle on it these days? Uh, it comes and goes with, um, it's been, um, yeah, the OCPD is always a really difficult, difficult one. It makes you sort of... Uh, uh, it makes you sort of uh, you can be a little insufferable in conversations mm-hmm. um, um, and a little bit difficult to work with uh, with this very rigid line of thinking that sometimes you have to try to step out of Right. the somatic PD is, is pretty much in check um, the things I've been doing with my life now with the the outreach work and stuff have challenged that a little bit because I have to be in a lot of hospitals and I have to be in a lot of situations where I have to ask myself that I accidentally, you know, did I, did I accidentally, like, you know, was I touching something that had fentanyl on it or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that, that kind of elicits sort of a, you know, am I going to die response, um, which is sort of rooted in, uh, which my OCD, I've always had it, and when I was a kid, it was it was pure OCD and harm OCD. And then after the blood clot that I got after and the pulmonary embolism, it sort of turned itself into somatic, where I was uh, tremendously uh, just these you know about every about every five minutes or so, I'd have a horrible intrusive thought about having an aneurysm or a heart attack or a or a, you know like some sort of not like hypochondria, but just like an immediate sudden impulse to death that created all these like really bizarre compulsions that um, were pretty debilitating after a while. Yeah. And um, to the point where I was sort of um, had a really bad eating disorder, was compulsively exercising, was horribly underweight, um, and was t- 
on my finger and I didn't read the right numbers, then I would I would start to panic and I would try to make my body read the right numbers. Which really was the thing about it is that it was the inability to um, to recognize the body as fluid. Uh, I want the body to be static. Like right now, I want my heartbeat to be 72. I want my blood oxygen to be 98. I want my blood pressure to be 120 over 80. And the fact that the body is constantly moving and fluctuating is an absurdly hard concept for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, yeah. Like, like what, like, like why does my heart continue to beat? Like right. What is, like, like, what fucking motivates that? You know what I mean? Like, what, you know, and that's a larger existential question and can be looked at as sort of an insightful thing or a completely stupid thing to say. But, um, but yeah, so then, uh, you know, I, I learned how to cope with that and, um, uh, to the best of my ability and, and it's, uh, it's exposure therapy. So it's not like talk therapy. It's like, Hey, I got a handle on it pretty quick because basically they were like, look, if you really want to conquer this, you have to scare the shit out of yourself every day. I'm like, man, I've been torturing myself for fucking years. This is easy. Yeah. That's yeah. the answer. Hey, fuck it. I'll do that. Like that's, I just got to scare the shit out of myself. Yeah. Um, which is essentially what, what a gradual, Facing of fears would be a more intellectual way of saying that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, so it, I, I did pretty well with treatment, and um, you know I wouldn't say it's in full remission, but I would say that it's managed. And it's really uh, like when, when you're in the when you're in the throes of it, though, like it's really um, like it's just extremely disruptive. Like you can't really carry on com- conversations like you, you can't really get on with a normal day when you're you know when your mind is you know uh obsessing over th- things right like absolutely yeah um that, that would be it and, and also it's um it's, uh, the way i like to translate it to folks is that like where i was at was the equivalent of like if i had gotten into a car wreck and the doctor had been like your chances of walking again are 10 percent Right. That's like my chances of walking again after my psychiatric break were like ten percent. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it's a little bit of a miracle of science that that I'm even can walk and function. You yeah. Know, um, in some capacity in in normal life. Yeah. Know? Well, cool, man. Um, well, cool. Thank, it, thanks for talking about that, man. Um, yeah. Hey, no worries. It was it was hugely. I, one thing I would I would like to say to people that may be listening to this is that, you know, here's something that most people don't really think about when they think about mental health, is that your brain is just like any other part of your body. If you um, if you damage your knee, or you pull your Achilles, you know, or some shit like that, you know, it's going to take about a year and a half for that to heal. Yeah, you know, fully. You know what I mean? And that's sort of what happens when you have a psychiatric break. And the thing is, is that most people, they separate it and they don't realize that a psychiatric break is a gradual process. So the more that people neglect their mental health and say, oh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I struggle with this and that, but, you know, it's it, it's fine. It's this. Yeah. You will tear that tendon eventually if you're under enough stress. And 
you will be in a position where a year to two years of your life will be rehabilitating your mind. Right. And the quicker, and sort of like, not that I'm a big microdosing fan, but if I had caught my OCD a year before, you know, uh, I might have been able to be fixed with being on some psilocybin instead of like 14 different medications that I got to take on a day to day. You know what I mean? Right. Interesting. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Um, I just have one more. Cause we've been about an hour and a half here, so I, I think we can wrap it up. But I just wanted to know, like, is there any um, Michael Jordan or like Tom Brady in you? Like, do you think you would ever come out of retirement with like a, a new album or anything? Um. You know, at this point, well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. This is, uh, so, so, I, I went, you know, I, I spoke with Snyder's people yesterday, and, and, you know, um, we talked about this, you're familiar with Dan Reader, right? Yeah, yeah. I basically, when Todd reached out to me, and was like, Aaron, you should, you should just record Frameless, you know, man, I, I don't, I don't want to see your art go by the wayside, you know, um, which... I'm totally fine with because, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it doesn't feel like, you know, you can't be attached to any outcome. Yeah. Um, make sure to make it and whether it is necessary for human consumption is for humans to decide. Um, not you. Um, I said that I would potentially be uh, a. I was. I said thank you, and I'm very flattered because you're you're one of my heroes. Yeah. Um, but I also said that like we kind of had like a little bit of a back and forth on it, and he sent me a really heartfelt message about his own struggles with with the with different stuff about life and shit. I said, man, I could see myself getting into this if I could be the damn reader of English. <laughs> Like, look, I'll play whatever events you got in town that you guys want to do. Call me up when you're doing something. Like, leave me the fu- like, like. But I'm just gonna do the thing that I do, and and when I have music, I'll give it to you. And you can put it out there, and yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, if it could be chill. But then, what stops me is the fucking holding call field where I'm out last night, and, and literally the topic of conversation with every single fucking person that was there was like. Darren, are you really going to quit? If you keep talking like that, I am going to fucking really quit. (laughs) Like, literally, uh, Sophie came up to me and asked today, like, you really quitting? Like, if you keep asking that fucking question, then I'm going to have to keep doing it even longer. Because I'm a man of my word, and if I say I'm going to quit, I'm going to fucking quit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I'll correct that by saying, well, I'll balance that, is that it's extremely endearing to me, and I am tremendously humbled by the fact that anybody gives a shit about the words that I've put in the world. Yeah. Um, so it's not that I don't appreciate this, the sentiment or the question. Well, they're asking because they love the work, you know. I know, and it, it's weird to me. It's because it's not that I don't, I don't, I don't. It's not that I don't love the work, or I don't love the idea. Like, you know, not that I like, love my own work. But, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like. I, 
I, I appreciate it tremendously. Uh, so it's something that I definitely um, would consider in the future. And, you know, if, if you know, the, you know, Todd, Todd is a, it's a very nice, you know, offer that he's made. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, let me have a home for my work if I want to do it. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I think the question really lies in this is that for, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, at this point, uh, I, you know, anyone, I mean, maybe somebody at the fan of mine will listen to an hour and 36 and, but right now what I'm doing is homeless outreach and, um, and it's really important to me and I really like doing it and I really like helping people and getting them into rehabs and treatments and, and getting to know folks, um, on that capacity and that level. And if I would say that it's dependent on if you know, oh, I'll wrap it up with this, is that, um, <laughs> I was having a conversation on the front porch of D's a couple months ago. And, uh, some, some guy, this guy, Chris Moyes, who is a really great songwriter and also, uh, does some contracting work in my house. Yep. Uh, we were, front porch and he have uh, these and he was like yeah man you know the muse just left you and you know it's gone and I was like no 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 <laughs> that muse has, that muse is fucking sitting in a chair in Boca fucking Raton and <laughs> like that 20 fucking years of chaos right I'm good bro <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. if the songs come back then yeah sure you know what I mean and if I feel that compulsive urge to say something then I will yeah yeah no I, to- I totally get that until that urge comes back it would be um it would be um um you know there's I, I've always I think I was saying this to somebody last night um you know it's like I don't my personal opinion is that you know you shouldn't I you shouldn't write anything that you're not willing to be the last thing you ever said, you know? Right, yeah. So, if it's not, if it, if it doesn't meet that cut for me, then, 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 then I don't, I don't really feel the need to write it, you know? Yeah. So, but, but I, I just, I do want to say that, um, it's flattering to me and, uh, it's tremendously humbling that, uh, you know, you, you never get everything in this. And like when you get into music, you don't get you. No one gets it all. Um, you get little pieces of the dream. Uh, I never got the I can go to Asheville, North Carolina, and a hundred people are going to pay ten bucks to see me. Yeah. But I got to be in a town where both my hero, one of my heroes, acknowledges my work, and the peers that I have been working with acknowledge my work both famous and not famous and god damn it if that's not a slice of the pie worth having and appreciating and being tremendously grateful for yeah man for sure you know you know it's it's enough you know i mean that was a big thing too for me when i when i decided to not do it anymore it's like how much validation does one person need you know like i got a fair shake i've gotten to experience a lot of things that most people who try to do music don't get to experience and there's a certain amount of reverence for saying, is that part of your life just just a piece that you ought to let be exactly what it was? Yeah. You know? 
Well said. Um, yeah. So that that's my answer. It's not it's not impossible, and I'm not playing some like footsie game. I just uh, I just you know if it, if it comes back, it comes back, and if it don't, I'm proud of the work I put out there. You know. Right on, man. Um, one more here. Do Do you think you'll ever? Uh, do you think Nashville is your permanent home, or do you ever miss New York? Do you ever think about going back there? Or? I don't think I would ever be able to make enough money to live where I'm from, and it pains me, and it's one of the things that tortures me on a daily basis because there is nothing more that I would want than to be able to ride the 167 from Dumont to uh, New York City and spend the day wandering around aimlessly um, and eating a bagel and uh, getting a slice of pizza and hearing two Italian dudes in a deli market talk to each other. Um, but my five-year plan is um, to um, is to get um, an apartment in Pensacola, which is another place that I call home. Oh, wow. And, okay. Um, okay. I would like to do my homeless outreach work from Nashville and then spend my off time um, being near the ocean, which has been uh, what one of the hardest things about Tennessee for me is the lack of access to just like really great water <laughs> you know Cumberland River just doesn't uh, cut it right I mean Nashville is a beautiful place for a lot of beautiful reasons but water isn't one of them yeah um yeah. but that's sort of my five year plan right on well um well th- thanks for for being so generous with your time man Sit at the kitchen and stare out the window at two squirrels running through the yard. I presume them both lovers chasing after each other, though chances are they are not. Then the one squirrel turns its head and looks me dead in. As a hawk swoops down, lifts the other off the ground And we both wave Juliet goodbye On the kitchen table, there's a pile of junk mail I pretend they're postcards from exotic This one's from Howie, and he sent it from Maui So we should take the time to refinance Then the skim milk pours down all over Cereal Town For I am the god of Cereal Town And the clusters unclust, and the bunches come bust And all of God's oak children drown It is what it is Since it was what it was Stains on the grain Made by coffee cups Kinda looks like Saturn Or a Death Star With a knot in the wood And such 
Well, the telephone rings, though it doesn't really ring. These days it's just a figure of speech. It beeps and it flashes, and it sonically harasses all the thoughts that I really like to keep. But you call just to say that you hope I'm okay. And quite frankly, I don't know what you mean. 